Pray with me, if you will. Lord, you are worthy of it all. As we've come today to worship, uh, we want to hear from your word. We thank you that you have not left us in the dark, but you've brought us into the light, and you've given us your word. It tells us not only about the here and now, but also about the things that are still to come. So as we put our faith and our hope in you and we anticipate what is yet to come, I pray that you would give us a good understanding so that we might be ready. And in the meantime, that we would glorify you with our lives and with our words and with all that we do in serving you and your kingdom. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 21. Our text today is verse 25 through verse 38 in a message entitled, Get Ready, the Son of Man is Coming. In the 1880s, if you wanted a good life with a good job, one of the places you moved to was Johnstown, Pennsylvania. The Pennsylvania Mainline Canal, the Pennsylvania Railroad, and Cambria Iron Works were all in town. And families from everywhere moved there. Some of the richest people in the country, including Andrew Carnegie and Andrew Mellon, uh, would come out from Pittsburgh to hunt and to fish at a private club that was uh, above the town where an old earth dam had been modified to make a fishing lake for them. On May 30th of 1889, a huge rainstorm came. When that huge rainstorm came... It dropped somewhere between 6 and 10 inches of water in the area. Despite that weather, the next day the town lined up along Main Street for the Memorial Day parade. They said that the morning was delightful. The city had displayed flags and banners and there were flowers everywhere. The streets were more crowded than they had ever been before. And then something catastrophic happened. The old dam, just miles above the town, collapsed. And when it collapsed, it released 4 billion gallons of water. And when the wall of water and debris hit Johnstown 57 minutes later, it was 60 feet high and it was traveling at 40 miles per hour. People tried to escape by running toward high ground, but over 2,000 people in a town of 30,000 people, died instantly. They found bodies as far away as Cincinnati, and some of them were not discovered until as many as 20 years later. The Johnstown flood remains one of the greatest tragedies in American history. Life was fine until it was not. In a moment, in a way that was unexpected, and in a time when most people were not prepared or anticipating it, something cataclysmic occurred and people were swept away. We read about a warning in the Word of God that continues the section that we looked at last in which Jesus is preparing us for the things that are still to come. And the warning that we read about in Luke chapter 21 and verse 5 through 24 began to talk about, Jesus did, the perilous times that are ahead. And we learned how God won't be surprised by these perilous times because nothing surprises God. Uh, God encourages his people to stay faithful in these perilous times. And we have this wonderful opportunity 
to bear witness about Jesus and to give people the hope uh, that we have in him. So we ought to heed the warning. We ought to get ready because these perilous times are ahead. And we need to make sure that we are following the early warning system of God's word so that we're not caught off guard. Jesus continues that theme in verses 25 to 38, which we're considering today, with a more in-depth teaching about the specific subject of his second coming. I begin reading here in Luke chapter 21 and verse 25. Then there will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars, and there will be anguish on the earth among nations, bewildered by the roaring of the sea and the waves. People will faint from fear and expectation of the things that are coming in the world because the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. But when these things take place, stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is near. Then he told them a parable, verse 29. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they put out leaves... You can see for yourselves and recognize that summer is already near. In the same way, when you see these things happening, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And then verse 34, be on your guard so that your minds are not dulled from carousing, drunkenness, and worries of life. Or that day will come on you unexpectedly like a trap, for it will come on all who live on the face of the whole earth. But be alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. During the day, he was teaching in the temple, but in the evening, he would go out and spend the night on what is called the Mount of Olives. Then all the people would come early in the morning to hear him in the temple. We have in view here the second coming of Jesus. And it's important to understand at least the basic framework that we think this is going to fit into in the biblical narrative. Among evangelical believers, there are three main views regarding the timing of future things or the timing of end things. The first view is what we refer to as premillennialism. It's the view that the second coming of Jesus will take place right before his 1,000-year millennial reign on the earth. This view holds to time frames and events, including the church age, which we're in, the great tribulation, the second coming, the millennium, the final judgment, and then the eternal state. The main difference that you'll find among those who hold to premillennialism is how people view the rapture or the taking up of the church. And whether that's going to happen at the beginning of or in the middle of or at the end of the great tribulation, and whether or not there's a secret rapture and then an evident second coming or one unified second coming prior to the millennium. That would be premillennialism. The second view that is also fairly common is amillennialism. And it's the belief that there will not be a literal 1,000-year reign of Christ. Uh, They see the kingdom of God as being synonymous with the millennial uh, kingdom and as a present-day reality. Uh, They hold that Jesus will return, judge the earth, and then usher in the eternal state. 
The third view that is not as prominent now, but it was historically, is postmillennialism. And it holds that the church will usher in the kingdom of God through the spreading of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that that will culminate in the return of Jesus. The millennium is viewed as a time of worldwide revival prior to the second coming of Jesus. Now, I am decidedly premillennial in my views, and that's the context in which I'm going to be preaching this particular message this morning. The passage before us in Luke's gospel is about the second coming, and I believe the second coming is going to take place at the end of the Great Tribulation and prior to the time of the millennium that is spoken of in the book of Revelation. We have the scene set here of what's taking place. Uh, During the day, Jesus is teaching in the temple, and then in the evening, he would go and he would spend the night on the Mount of Olives. Now, if you've not been to Jerusalem, the Mount of Olives is just a very short walk outside of the city. So he's making a very short journey there. He's spending the night, and then he's coming back. And what I picture here are the people crowding in very early so that they can get the best spot as close to Jesus as possible. And they're coming in to hear what Jesus is teaching. And they're interested in what he has to say. In these few moments that we have together, I want to share with you three realities about the second coming. And we're going to find these here in this passage. And I think they'll be helpful for us as we get ready for the coming of the Son of Man. The first reality is that the coming of the Son of Man is certain. It's certain. Now, I want to draw a parallel here between the first coming of Jesus, which was his birth, and then the second coming of Jesus, which we still await. In the first coming, Jesus came to this world as a baby in a manger. And there was a whole host of prophecy that pointed to his birth and the moment of his birth and what the characteristics of that birth would be. The Bible teaches that the Messiah was to be born of a virgin. Isaiah 7 and verse 14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. See, the virgin shall conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel. Matthew referenced Isaiah and noted in his gospel in Matthew chapter 1, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. We have that connector between what God said was going to happen through his prophets and what actually happened in his birth. Then we're told that the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. In Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, it says, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Matthew chapter 2 and verse 1 tells us that Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. The Messiah would be called a Nazarene according to Isaiah chapter 11. And then Matthew chapter 2 confirms that very thing in verse 23. And he went and lived in the city of Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. The Messiah would be called Jesus, the son of Of the Most High. This is a reference to Isaiah 9. And then in Luke chapter 1 and verse 31, the scripture says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. So God has spoken through his word, and he has spoken through his son. And God acts, and he works, and he moves, and he carries out his will through real people, in real events, in real time. 
God made promises about the first coming of Jesus. He kept every one of them just as he prophesied through his people. God did wondrous things through Jesus, the Son of the Most High, in his birth and his life and his death and his resurrection. And God will do wondrous things through his Son, the Son of the Most High. And I would say to you today that just as there were prophecies about the first coming of Jesus, there are also prophecies about the second coming of Jesus. A most prominent one here from Jesus himself in Luke chapter 21. Now, it's been said that in his first coming, Jesus came as the suffering servant. But in his second coming, he will return as the conquering king. In his first coming, he arrived in the most humble of all circumstances. But in his second coming, he will arrive with the armies of heaven by his side. In verse 27 indicates that they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And he says, but when these things begin to take place, stand and lift your heads because your redemption is near. Now, it's interesting here that the wording in verse 27 is from Daniel chapter 7 in verse 13 and 14. This is a passage that we already looked at last week as we thought about some of the things that Jesus was saying that are going to be the buildup to his second coming. But Daniel saw in his vision one who is identified as being like a son of man. The son of man in his vision came up from the ancient of days, and he has given eternal dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the people's nations and men of every language might serve him. And that's what Luke is telling us here in this gospel according to the words of Jesus. Now, you might not realize this, but there are 1,500 passages in the Old Testament and one out of 25 verses in the New Testament that refer to the second coming of the Messiah in one form or another. So this is a very prominent theme that we are to get ready because the coming of the Son of Man is certain. And at the end of the great tribulation, the nations will gather to fight Jerusalem at the battle of Armageddon. And the prophet Zechariah wrote, listen to this, six centuries before the first coming of Jesus. And he had this to say in Zechariah 14 and verse 1 and following. He said, look, a day belonging to the Lord is coming when the plunder taken from you will be divided in your presence. I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem for battle. The city will be captured, the houses looted, and the women raped. Half the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people will not be removed from the city. And then the Lord will go out to fight against those nations as he fights on a day of battle. And on that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in half from east to west, forming a huge valley so that the mountain will move to the north and half to the south. You will flee by my mountain valley, for the valley of the mountains will extend to us all. You will flee as, you, uh, as the earthquake was formed in the days of King Uzzah in Judah. And then the Lord my God will come and the holy ones with him. Zechariah chapter 14, 600 years before the first coming of Jesus. Now we are 2,000 years removed from that. And when is that day coming? Only the Lord knows. Only the Lord knows the time. But what we do know is that it is certain and that the Son of Man, when he comes, will come to receive 
the kingdom. And when these things begin to take place, all of his disciples are to lift up their heads. Now, this idea of of lifting up their heads is a sign of rejoicing. It's a sign of hope. And the reason that it's rejoicing and the reason that it is hope is because your redemption is near. The reality of all that you've hoped for, all that has been promised, all that God has said that he will give to us will be fulfilled and we will see it with our very eyes. And when Jesus returns, evil will be swiftly defeated, the earth will be renewed, God will win, and we will enjoy being in the presence of God forever. The coming of the Son of Man is certain. Second reality, the coming of the Son of Man will be preceded by signs. It will be preceded by signs. Now, we've already had some build-up to this before this passage as we introduced the, the latter part of what I read a few moments ago in the words of Jesus in preparing us. But the first coming of Jesus was accompanied by manifestations of the power and the glory of God. I want to draw another parallel here because the angel announced that the baby was to be conceived by the Holy Spirit. If that's not miraculous, I don't know what is. The heavenly chorus sang and announced the birth of Jesus to the shepherds. There was a star that guided the wise men to where Jesus was. And what that tells us is that the Lord who created all things has power over them to use them for his purposes. And he's going to do the same in the second coming. Because in the second coming, it will be accompanied by manifestations of the power and the glory of God in signs. Now, in verses 20 to 24 in Luke chapter 21, we learn that Jerusalem will be besieged, depopulated, and handed over to Gentile rule for a fixed period of time. And people who value their lives will flee before it's too late. Matthew 24 and verse 31 says, He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. And then verse 25 before us now says, Then there will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars, and there will be anguish on the earth among the nations, bewildered by the roaring of the seas and the waves. People will faint from fear and expectation of the things that are coming on the world because the powers of the heavens will be shaken. What's that, what is that a view of? It's a view of cosmic disorder, at least from our perspective. It's not according to God's, but this too was prophesied in the Old Testament. Almost everything that Jesus says here is a reference to the Old Testament. We could do a study of this passage simply on how it's connected to the Old Testament because Jesus is weaving that thread of what God has said, what's already taken place, what happened in his first coming, and now what we can anticipate in his second coming. In Matthew chapter 24 and verse 29, he referenced Isaiah 13 and verse 10. Isaiah 13 and verse 10 indicates that the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky. Luke adds that the sea and the waves will roar. And I believe that the dramatic effects that God will impose on creation at that time will have this impact. It will 
demonstrate that he is Lord over the universe. He's Lord of it all. He's in charge of it all. And in Joel 2 and verse 30 and 31, he says, I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. I love the way Leon Morris put it in his commentary on Luke. He said, the end will feature unnatural disasters, cosmic portents, quakes in the heavens, terrestrial catastrophes, tidal disturbances, chaos. All of these are part of his final appearing. He says this is apocalyptic language for violent change in the natural order and in human life. And the result will be widespread despair and apprehension. And I believe the kind of catastrophe and calamity that is given here is given even in more detail in the book of Revelation. And there's much there that's symbolic. There's much that is very complicated. Only by the Holy Spirit could we understand the framework of of what is being taught there. But what we know is this, and we know it for sure, the population of the world will cower in fear. This idea in this passage of, of perplexity, or great distress, actually referred literally to being chained. Here's why that's important. The image that we get is that people will be bound by their anxiety. They'll be chained by their anxiety. But here's the good news. As believers, we do not have to live in fear. As believers, we do not have to live in anxiety. As believers, we do not have to fear global catastrophe. Instead, we can lift up our eyes and we can keep them focused on Jesus because he's our hope and we already know the end of the story and we know that God has all the power and God has made all the promises and because God has all the power, all of the promises will come to pass and we can trust him. And that brings peace to us as we keep our eyes fixed on him. Now, Jesus does something interesting here as he teaches a short parable about a fig tree in verses 29 to 33. This is kind of like a parenthesis, like in the middle of his teaching. This is kind of a, 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 a middle of the story kind of teaching that he brings here. But it's very straightforward. In fact, he gives us the instruction on what he's even talking about. The fig tree is an example of a tree that buds before summer. And when a fig tree buds, summer is coming and fruit is on the way. The parallel that Jesus draws is that in the same way, when the signs referenced are seen, the coming of Jesus in glory with his church to the world will follow. All that points to the fact that the kingdom of God is near. He said, you can look at the fig tree, you can look at these other trees, and and when summer comes, certain things happen. He said, you can look at the signs, and when you see these signs, certain things are going to happen. And I think when Jesus references that this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take take place, uh, there's a couple of of things that are important to note here. First of all, he's been teaching in this entire context about what was going to happen uh, to Jerusalem. He was teaching that there was going to be a destruction that was coming on Jerusalem that was uh, a present reality in the years to come because we know what happened in 70 AD from the story of history. So he could have been referring to that. But then I think he's also referring specifically to the generation that would experience these signs. 
And he says, when these particular signs take place, then this generation will not pass away till they all take place. And I believe to the generation that will see the signs is who Jesus is referring. They will also see the very end. Now, what's going to happen at the end of all these signs? We got this big buildup. We've got these cataclysmic events. We've got these cosmic happenings. What's going to happen? All of it's going to culminate in the spectacular, glorious return of Jesus. That's what it's going to culminate in. And he says here in verse 33, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. The words of Jesus will not pass away because they are the words of God himself. What Jesus has said defines reality. What Jesus has said is true. What Jesus has said is dependable. And we can place our hope and our trust in him as his person. And we can also place our hope and trust in him in his word. The coming of the Son of Man will be preceded by signs. But now there's a third reality. The coming of the Son of Man could find us unprepared. Verse 34 and 35, he begins to give us warning here that we're to be on guard so that our minds are not dulled by carousing and drunkenness and the worries of life. He says, that day will come upon you unexpectedly like a trap. For it will come on all who live on the face of the whole earth. He says, so what you need to do is you need to be alert at all times. And you need to pray so that you have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place. And to be ready to stand before the Son of Man. So here's the danger. When Jesus returns, believers might be unprepared. Because they're living the same way that the world is living. With no distinction. No separation, no concern for holiness. And I want you to note here, the words of Jesus are shocking in this regard. He's speaking to his followers. He's speaking to believers. He's speaking, first of all, to his disciples. And what had they done? They'd given up everything they had to follow Jesus. They laid it all on the line to follow him. And yet he says to those people, You are in danger of being distracted, and you are in danger of falling into sin. You are in danger of these things that could take your eyes off of the Lord. So to them and to us, Jesus says, be on guard. What's he telling us? None of us are above sin. He's telling us that none of us are above sin. Being in danger of falling. Just as 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 12 says, Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. And it's easy, so easy, for us to be caught up in the way the world's living, be caught up in the simple distractions of life, and to not be walking with the Lord as we should. I read about something that happened on January the 14th of 2005. A man by the name of Shane Mexner uh, died in an avalanche. The 27-year-old and four of his friends had driven to the Canyon Ski Resort outside of Park City, Utah. They rode the ski lift. They hiked up to the backcountry gate outside the Dutch Draw area, and they went through the gate posted with warning signs, and they began 
to snowboard. On the second trip down the slope, someone in the party shouted, avalanche. But Shane could not escape. Two days later, they dug his body out of the snow. Some of the media severely criticized the reckless and out-of-bounds riders. They tried to picture Shane as a novice, unaware of the possible dangers. But then the rest of the story came out, which was very telling. Shane and two others in his party, get this, were avalanche-certified backcountry guides. These men owned special avalanche gear, but the problem was they didn't take it with them when they went to Dutch Draw. It's not an unusual occurrence, evidently. It said, in fact, skiers with the most avalanche training are more likely to be seduced into the faulty reasoning by factors like track slopes and group enthusiasm. And as it turns out, Shane didn't die because he was a fool. Like his friend and his friends who were with him, he was lulled into letting his guard down. Now, this is a cautionary tale for all of us. That we can know all the right things. We can agree with all the right things. We can think it's a good idea to keep our eyes on the Lord and to walk with him in faith and to be prepared and to live like a Christian and not just to live like the world without distinction. We can agree with all that stuff. But if we let our guards down, then we can be caught unaware. Mark chapter 13 Beginning in verse 32 says, Now concerning that day or hour, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Watch, be alert, for you don't know when the time is coming. It's like a man on a journey who left his house and gave authority to his servants, gave each one his work, and commanded the doorkeeper to be alert. Therefore, be alert, since you don't know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening or at midnight or at the crowing of the rooster or early in the morning. Otherwise, when he comes suddenly, he might find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to everyone, be alert. Now, you might note here that Jesus emphasizes three specific areas of distraction for believers that might cause us to be unprepared for his return. The first is carousing or dissipation. It's my understanding that this particular word is the hangover resulting from drunkenness. And it is sin. Jesus said you need to be on on watch for that. Be aware of that. The second is drunkenness itself. And drunkenness is always sin. The third is worry or preoccupation with the anxieties of life. And just as carousing and dissipation or drunkenness are sin, worry or preoccupation with the anxieties of life, that's sin also. And we need to be on guard against that because it's the opposite of faith. And it's a temptation that we all suffer with because in the moment we're thinking about these things that are stressing us out and these, these ordinary things of life that we got to take care of, it's easy for those things to weigh us down. And we start thinking about those things a lot more than we should think about the Lord. And I think worldliness among believers is a problem that leads to unpreparedness. And the Bible draws a sharp distinction between friendship with God and friendship with the world. Friendship with the world, the scripture says specifically, is hatred toward God. 
Worldliness is the opposite of godliness. And worldliness is either a reflection of being lost or a sign of being spiritually immature. You and the Holy Spirit know which that is if it's the case in your life or the case in the life of someone in your family. It's either a sign of being lost or it's a sign of being spiritually immature. So to avoid it and to be on guard, we need to be growing in our faith as we follow Jesus. I love the way Titus puts it in Titus 2 and verse 11. He says, the grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So what's the antidote to carousing and drunkenness and worry? Watchfulness. It's the mindset that this world is not all there is, that our time here, even if it's a long time that we get to live on the earth, it's a short time. And we need to be ready either to meet the Lord when our time is up or when Jesus returns. The coming of the Son of Man could find us unprepared. So he says in verse 36, Be alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. What does it mean to be alert at all times? It means to watch with wakeful concern, to vigilantly guard against spiritual drowsiness. It means to watch our lives and to watch for the return of the Lord. And then what does it mean to pray? It means to pray always so that you may have strength. It means to pray without ceasing. It means that that communion with God. It's not just a set prayer time, but it's that ongoing communion with God where you're drawing power from the Holy Spirit and you're drawing direction from the Word of God. And as you do that, you're praying so that you'll have strength. And when you feel weak, what do you need to do? You need to pray. Because when you feel weak, you need to go to God and you say, God, I feel weak and I'm experiencing this worry right now. And I feel like I'm, I'm dull in my spiritual senses. And I feel like I'm unfocused. And Lord, I need your help. And when we pray that kind of prayer, the Lord will, the Lord will sharpen us. And he'll draw us closer to himself. So that we can stand before the Son of Man. What do we need to stand before the Son of Man? His righteousness. We don't have any. I come empty handed. I have nothing to offer to God that would make me worthy in His presence. I have nothing that would make God receive me on my own. I have no good works. I have no offerings. I have nothing that will make me stand in the presence of God except the blood of Jesus Christ. Because God declares me righteous in him. And because God declares you righteous in him. When you repent of your sins and you trust in the Savior, God accepts you based on the righteousness of Jesus. And we'll be able to stand. And we'll be able to stand by grace. So I ask you as I close out this sermon, are you living a watchful and prayerful life? That's what God God calls you to live as a Christian a watchful and a prayerful life as you anticipate the second coming of our Lord. Let's bow our heads together as we pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you today that you have given us this clear warning of what to expect 
And I pray that we all would be prepared. God, you know the condition of every soul that is listening to this message, whether or not they know you, whether or not they've repented and believed in Jesus Christ as their hope of righteousness. God, I pray if there even be one that would say, you know what? I'm not ready. I'm not ready. I'm not ready because I don't know Jesus. I pray that today would be the day that they get ready and by faith place their trust in him. I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ. God, there are so many distractions. We uh, battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And any of those things can be formidable. But I pray that you would help us to watch and pray and to be ready that we'd not be dull, that we'd not be caught up in worldliness that distracts our hearts and our minds from you. Help us to be like Jesus in all that we do. We give this time a closing response over to you now, Lord. We ask you to move and work in people's hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.